Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for issue six of our comics bracket. This week, we'll be discussing 1980s Popeye, as well as 2015's The Peanuts Movie. So going into this, up until about 10 minutes before we watched it, I was like, oh, this is going to be like one of the It's a Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown movies or whatever. So when it was not, I was like, what? This is a modern animation thing? This is 3D CGI? Oh, it's so plebeian. <sighs> this is an interesting one. Both of these are beloved classics of the newspaper strips. Iconic Americana. Let's go ahead and get into plot summaries for the films. Uh, in Popeye from 1980, Popeye, a sailor man, arrives at the port town of Sweethaven looking for his pap, but he has a hostile reception. He rents a room with the inn where Olive Oil, the innkeep's daughter, is seen to be engaged. She's having second thoughts and flees the engagement party, running into Popeye. A mysterious man swaps her luggage for a basket containing a baby, which Popeye and Olive adopt, much to the ire of her ex-fiancé, Bluto. As the enforcer for the mysterious merrily seen Commodore, Bluto imposes extreme tax on the oil family. Various get-rich schemes fail until they discover that the baby can see the future. All tries to use him for gambling against Popeye's morals. They break up and Popeye moves out. He takes out his anger on the tax man to the town's delight, and in their celebration, the baby is kidnapped and taken to the Commodore. When Popeye goes to confront him, he finds the Commodore is his pappy, and also is all tied up. The Commodore is disbelieving and orders Popeye to eat some spinach. He refuses, proving by his disobedience that he is the Commodore's son. Bluto realizes he no longer needs the Commodore and his money if he just has an oracular baby. He takes the baby and, and Olive off to find the Commodore's buried treasure. Bickering, Pappy and Son go to rescue them. Just when it looks like all is lost and Bluto has the upper hand and Olive is about to be eaten by a giant octopus, Bluto forces Popeye to eat some spinach. This activates his ex-gene or whatever and he wins the day. They all live happily ever after. On the other hand, when a new family moves to town during snow day, Charlie Brown and friends all ponder what their new classmate will be like. The next day, the new kid is revealed as the little red-haired girl, whom Charlie Brown immediately becomes infatuated with. But unfortunately, due to his predilection for failure and the low self-esteem that flows from it, he can't bring himself to just talk to her. He consults Lucy for psychiatric help and is convinced that he must do something to impress the little red-haired girl. At first, he attempts a magic act at the school talent show, but sacrifices his time slot to prevent his little sister Sally from bombing with her cowgirl act. Next, he learns the little red-haired girl likes to dance, and is determined to win the boys' dance competition at the school dance, to earn a final dance with her. But once again, his hopes are dashed when he slips and sets off the sprinkler, bringing a premature end to the dance. Then, with the little red-haired girl away, caring for a sick grandmother, she, Charlie Brown, are paired together to write a book report. Wanting to complete the report on his own before she returns, Charlie Brown decides to write on what he hears is the greatest novel of all time, War and Peace. Additionally, the results of the class standardized tests have been posted, and Charlie Brown has received a perfect score. His popularity climbs, leading to him procrastinating the book report. With only a single weekend left, Charlie Brown finishes the report, do the same day as an assembly celebrating his test score. However, as he's receiving the award, he realizes there's a mistake, that his and Peppermint Patty's tests were swapped, and refuses the award, revealing the mix-up to the whole school. A later accident on the playground also destroys the book report, causing Charlie Brown and the little red-haired girl to fail the assignment. Finally, it's the last day of school, and the last thing the students need to do is pair up to be summer pen pals. As Charlie Brown's name is called, most students try to avoid partnering with him, but the little red-haired girl volunteers. Afterward, Charlie Brown is dumbfounded, and Linus convinces him to just ask her why she chose him. Charlie Brown rushes to the bus before she can leave for summer camp and confronts her. She reveals that his actions throughout the year showed compassion, courage, honesty, and determination, all qualities she admires. She gets on the bus, and the two promise her right to one another over the summer. Both these movies have some interesting interaction with gender stuff. 
Yes. Yes. We'll get to that eventually, but where do we want to start with Popeye? I think to really understand this movie, we need to talk about the circumstances under which it was made. Yeah. So, Paramount lost the bidding war for Annie the Musical. Yes, that Annie the Musical. (laughs) Which we talked about two episodes prior. Anyway, Paramount lost the, the deal, and they're sitting around at a table like, hmm, what can we make into a musical that's kind of like Annie, but not? And it's like 3 a.m. and someone goes, let's make Popeye a musical. And someone goes, great, let's do that. Because it's also a really old comic strip from around the 30s. And everything to do with Popeye makes you think this should be set to song. So Disney Paramount entered into a two-part deal to make a joint financial venture, Popeye and Dragon Slayer. <laughs> What do these movies have in common? Almost nothing, apart from, I guess, a not very clear magic system. Those movies got made, and this movie did make its budget back, but Robert Altman, the director, was not easy to work with, but because he did so well with MASH and Nashville, they were like, here, have all the money and no creative oversight. And he made this, and then no one gave him lack of creative oversight ever again. Probably a wise decision. We didn't talk about it in our third episode of this bracket, but kind of a similar thing happened with Dick Tracy. Batman, a few years prior, had done extremely well, and so a lot of movie studios were looking for other 1930s pulp detectives that they could make movies of. So we got Dick Tracy, and we also got The Shadow and The Phantom out of that. Sadly, The Phantom and The Shadow did not make it onto our bracket. We may end up having those be part of our uh, what-ifs after the bracket. We'll see. Yeah, so Popeye is a a musical. I don't understand why you'd go in that direction. None of the characters have anything resembling to a pleasant singing voice. Popeye kind of sounds like a frog most of the time. Olive oil is high-pitched and shrill. Bluto sounds like a bulldog that's been crossed with a pencil sharpener. I mean, those are perfectly fine as character traits for both a cartoon and for a film if you want to go for that kind of, like, everybody's weird thing that many productions do. But uh, having those characters try to sing while maintaining the accent for the character is not a winning formula. It doesn't help that Robin Williams, may he rest in peace, uh, has to do the Popeye voice while also holding a corncob pipe in his mouth while singing. That is too much to fit into one head, even one as talented as Robin Williams. Especially since he also has these uh, tumorous growths on his forearms. He, he sure does. We praised the practical effects from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles last week, but oh boy, these ones were not as strong. I understand why they did it. It's iconic to the character to have those really oddly sized forearms. Apparently the original creator did not know how muscles worked, but it it doesn't look good in live action. Nope. Partially because it's just the forearms. They don't do anything to give him like bulkier shoulders or anything else that might even out the proportions. Also, it's weird to see Rob Williams as thin and blonde. Robin Williams has always been kind of like a pleasant, portly person in most things that I know him from, and it's weird to see him not that. I mean, this was incredibly early in his career. Yeah, he was still Mork of Mork and Mindy at this point. And this was his first major film role. He had had a few nameless parts in a film in 1977, but that was it. Everything else was his stand-up or a few TV spots. 
And he is merely doing his best with this role. While I think the film overall is not strong, I think they did do a decent job bringing us this man who's very ostracized from the community, who's who's trying to find his dad, who doesn't fit in, who's very lonely, who's kind of, I think, socially poorly adjusted. And Rob Williams takes this character from just kind of a wacky to having some deep inner sadness, and I appreciate that. Rob Williams is a really talented actor. There's also a few bits where... I am very positive that Robin Williams was able to add lib a few lines and they were kept in. And those moments, the character shines. Yeah, like when they're in the brothel and he worries about getting a venerable disease. <laughs> Shelley Duvall is actually not too bad here, at least when she's not trying to sing. Yeah, I feel bad, but Shelley Duvall is not a, not a singy person. The physicality of her is spot on for olive oil, though. I don't think they could have cast someone better. Yeah, and she has that kind of weird, nervous energy that you need for this character. Mm -hmm. Oddly enough, probably the best singing voice in the film is from Paul L. Smith as Bluto. He has his lovely deep baritone. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know what I mean. Although most of his non-singing dialogue consists of just grunts. I mean, that's pretty consistent with the character from the cartoon. I get it. I think it would probably help this a lot if the songs were stronger. The songs that are kind of decent are poorly done, and the ones that are done well are bad songs. Mean and He's Large are not very strong songs, but they're, you know, shot in a way that makes sense. You have the camera close on the characters' faces. You have uh, them moving around the frame and doing things that make sense for what they're saying. Meanwhile, you have uh, I Am What I Am What I Am, or whatever the song title is, where is Rob Williams darting around the set with the camera way back here, and yeah, that makes sense if everybody was dancing, but it's just Popeye menacing people in the scene, and that doesn't work. I will say this for large, it did lead to a lot of unintentional hilarity for us, because we just determined that Olive Oil is a size queen. He's large. Although, the song should work. The idea of the song is that she's trying to convince herself that this guy's got good qualities and all she can come up with is he's tall and large and large and that's it. He's large. And while she doesn't say it out loud, also prevents her family from being taxed into poverty. Yeah. And as she realizes that there's nothing good to say about this guy, she runs away from the engagement. Fair enough. That is a decent structure. It's just really badly executed. Leading to more problems for this musical production is the sound mixing is terrible. There's a number of songs where you can barely make out what the characters are singing. There's a number of scenes where you can barely make out what the characters are saying. There's, they don't do a good job of separating the incidental background noise from the character's dialogue or the dialogue that matters from background dialogue. Mm -hmm. Probably some of the worst offenders are the song as Popeye is first getting to uh, Sweet Haven and then the song number in the Rough House, which is like the restaurant, diner, bar. It's where the hamburgers live. Yes. Speaking of hamburgers, I love the character of Wimpy. <laughs> Wimpy's very good. I much prefer Wimpy in his cartoon appearances because they're just better. But they do a pretty decent job with Wimpy here, who is played by Paul Dooley. Of course. Who else yeah. would you get to play Wimpy? And is just having a lot of fun with the role, especially during the scene in the rough house, as well as after they realize that Sweet Pea is psychic and trying to get him away from Popeye of Olive Oil to uh, make some money gambling. Yep. 
As you do. There's also a wonderful line after the oils and all of their borders have been taxed into poverty. What is that glop you're eating? It's a soup burger. These are difficult times. Burgers can't be choosers. Yeah, that that's a great line. And there are a number of decent lines in here. Like, there's a bit where, during the whole, like, no, no son of mine's going to be involved in gambling scene, Popeye says, I ain't no physicist, but I knows what matters. That's really great. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, while there's some good lines, there's also a few problematic ones. Like, they're commenting on the gender of Sweet Pea, and Popeye insists that Sweet Pea is a boy because... Her is a him, see? It likes to smoke. He's playing with Popeye's pipe, but... The line does not land very well, <laughs> and to a much less comical degree of badness. At the boarding house dinner after Popeye first arrives, they're talking about Olive Oil's engagement to Bluto and how she's broken off the engagement a few times, and her brother Castor makes a comment. I'd never let a girl break my engagement. I'd break her nose before she broke my engagement. <sighs> yeah, that's... Uh... Yeah... Next to Wimpy, I hate him best. Next to Wimpy, I hate him best. He does get beat up in the middle of the movie by a boxer, so there's a little catharsis. Yeah. I don't want to get too into it, but this movie's gender politics aren't great, and that's at least partially inspired by the comics and cartoons that it came from, which are about as not great. Like, the running through line of the comics is Bluto trying to... uh, have his way with um olive and it's uh it's really gross and i hate it yeah typical damsel in distress stuff yeah speaking of damsel in distress i'm really sad that olive spends the whole climax of the movie just going oh 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 no oh it's identical oh oh <sighs> yeah going back to that dinner scene it's not really even clear what that scene is trying to convey i think it's part of the problem of the dialogue is really messy there there's about three or four conversations happening all at once, but the editing doesn't do a good job of transitioning between these conversations. Mm-hmm. There's also the the physicality of all the actors. They're getting up and moving things around, and there doesn't seem to be any apparent purpose to it. Most of it kind of seems to just be trying to get into Popeye's way, because by the time that Popeye is able to sit down and get a plate, everyone's gone and there's no food. And it's a really long, drawn-out scene for a pretty minor comical payoff i mean i get it like that's good solid comedy scene setup the the protagonist can't get to the food because there are things moving around that i've seen that before i've seen it done well i don't know why it doesn't work here i guess just like maybe the filming wasn't gonna work out or they didn't have the set set up right to let them put the camera in a place that lets you really understand why things are the way they are but Mm -hmm. yeah Heck, they even manage that later on. There's where Wimpy's trying to eat his sandwich and it gets taken away. They can clearly do this, but they just couldn't do it that well there. I think part of the problem is this is also trying to establish some characters and character relationships and plot, and it was doing too much at once. But that's not the only problems that this film has with plot. There's a lot of threads that just kind of get abandoned. Like, after the engagement party, Bluto doesn't make any attempt to try and win olive oil back. He's just kind of off to the background until he realizes, oh, hey, that baby's psychic. And speaking of the baby and dropped plot lines, who replaced the basket that Sweet Pea came in? Like, who replaced olive oil's luggage? Did she ever get those clothes back? Oh, that was Zeus. Zeus? Yes. Like like the the Greek deity. Yes. So here's where we get into the deep dive. Oh boy. In one of the cartoons we learned that Popeye is distantly related to Hercules. 
that makes sense. Specifically, he, he's telling his nephews that their great, 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 great uncle is Hercules. And I'm like, hmm, how does that work? And start looking through family trees. They don't go quite that far, so we couldn't really figure out how that all worked. Um, then I started thinking, wait, hold on. Greek mythology. Popeye and his dad both only have one eye. They're cyclopses. So I tried to figure out, are there any cyclopses that are related to Hercules in a way that makes sense? Not exactly. The best I got was that like Polyphemus is Hercules' cousin, but Hercules had a daughter, Galates, with an unnamed Celtic woman. The Celtic women are descended from Galatea and Polyphemus, which means that we can trace Popeye's lineage to the sibling of the Celtic woman who had a daughter with Hercules. <laughs> therefore, therefore, Popeye and his Father are genetic throwbacks to Polyphemus, the Cyclops from the Odysseus myth. The baby that was in that basket that got swapped was one of Zeus's many children, and he's trying to hide the baby from Hera and Hera's wrath. Why else would the baby be psychic if it wasn't a demigod? So what you're saying is Popeye is a midquel between OG Greek mythology and the Rick Riordan Olympian series. That is exactly what I'm saying. It makes perfect sense. He even fights a sea monster at the end. Also, consider Bluto. Sounds a lot like Pluto. It would make perfect sense for Bluto to also be a demigod, which is why he's so strong. He's a descendant of Pluto. <sighs> I guess. <laughs> I know this is all nonsense, but I spent a long time looking through family trees, and who oh boy. To be fair, there's a lot of having to make your own fun with this movie. Jotto. I think what we can't really get across to you is how much nothing happened in this. Like, there's just kind of a lot of scenes of wheels spinning and characters doing stuff. There's just so much of this film that does not make a lot of sense. There are a couple good things. So Popeye has the sad story of looking for his father. And the first night that he's staying there, we see him kind of talking to this picture frame, which you assume that there must be a picture of his father in there. Well, at the end of the conversation, as he's setting it aside to go to sleep. It's just empty and it just has me Papa written on it. And it's... It's actually an incredibly, like, touching scene. Oh, wow, he really has nothing from his father. This is incredibly sad. Yeah, that he's talking to this as if it was a picture makes you kind of pity this person who seems to have a really, like, hecked-up psyche. And credit where credit is due, there's a payoff later in the film where Popeye's pappy is opening up a chest of all his valuables, and in there is also another picture frame on it is written me sunny. <laughs> I, I think that's one of the few touching moments that this film actually has. I guess if you think about it a bit, the Popeye not having a dad, but trying his darndest to be a really good dad to this kid that he finds is pretty solid. I respect someone stepping up so that a kid doesn't have to have the same unfortunate upbringing they had. That's solid. Yeah. And the plot of every season of Once Upon a Time. <laughs> Although it does get into some interesting gender stuff with Popeye. Yeah. I didn't know how to feel about all that. He very often refers to himself as attempting to be a mother to Sweet Pea. He talks to the boxer's mother and he says, I'm a man, I'm a mother myself. I don't know. On one hand, I can see it trying to promote the stereotypes of, oh, well, raising children is a woman's job. But Popeye is willingly stepping into that role that society views that way and is totally fine with being viewed in this 
feminine context to do so because it's the right thing. Right. And it's not like there isn't a mother in the picture. He's got olive oil. She's right there. In that same vein, there's a bit where Popeye and the baby are separated. He puts a message in a baby bottle to throw out to sea. And that's a really cute visual image. It's it's a good blending of these two ideas. Mm-hmm. I think that the film kind of picks up once the baby shows up. It gives us something to hang on to. Yeah, and it gives the characters some motivation to, to gravitate around beyond, I guess, their quirks quirking at each other. It also brings Popeye and Olive Oil together, which if you're going to do a Popeye movie, that's going to be the, the core of the film is that relationship. And while it would be okay with them just being together already, if a different story, this is clearly an origin story movie for a superhero because it's the first superhero movie, so you got to have an origin story. Which frustrates the hell out of me. It's an hour and 22 minutes before anyone cracks a can of spinach. The whole thing where Popeye refuses to eat spinach out of obstinacy, I guess, is a way to delay that, but... The film literally ends with Popeye's iconic tune of... Oh, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. That would have been a great musical number to introduce him to Sweet Haven. Yes, you have to... Oh, yeah, he gets superpowers from spinach, but there's other ways around that where he's... Like limited. The cartoon came up with plenty of ways. They're a seafaring village. They probably don't get a lot of imports of spinach. Mm-hmm. Or you have a simple three-act structure where he fixes some problem in the first act by eating spinach. In the second act, he eats spinach and his strength causes a problem and he, he swears it off and then he has to pick it back up at the end of the third act to save the day. I know that's basically the plot of Spider-Man 2, but it worked. Spider-Man 2 is great. Third best Spider-Man movie. <sighs> and... It's also really sad because the song and dance number to the Popeye theme is actually probably the best musical number in the film, and it's the very last one. Mm-hmm. That song also has a lot more energy than the other songs do. The other ones seem kind of, I guess, homespun. Like, they feel like they were written and produced pretty fast to get this movie out of the way. Considering that this film was greenlit because they lost the bidding war for the rights to the Annie film, and this came out two years before then, and they didn't have a stage musical to work from adapting that tells you a lot right now of how slapdash this production must have been yeah i'm kind of sad because i think if this was done with more time and care and attention it could have been really cool to have the whole musical be like very sea shanty-ish admittedly man with strict morals arrives in small island town to take care of child and everything is folk songs how the wicker man happened and that's a very different movie i think my main feeling after watching this was i was even more sad that gindy tarakovsky's popeye film was canned by the executives at sony if you don't feel like being sad don't google gindy tarakovsky popeye because man what could have been i think i've said my piece Yeah, there's troubles with it, and there's good stuff in it, but I understand why it wasn't as well received as it could have been. Changing gears drastically, let's go ahead and talk about the Peanuts movie. And this is specifically the one from 2015, the animated one. This is the only work that's called the Peanuts movie. All of the specials are focused on Charlie Brown or Snoopy, as far as the title goes, which is actually rather indicative of most of Charles Schultz's work. He actually hated the title Peanuts. It, to him, was nonsense and didn't really relate back to the characters. 
it was thought up because Charles Schultz during the late 40s had a comic in his like local newspaper called Little Folks, which was pretty similar, but it didn't have a set cast of characters. It was just a bunch of rotating children doing like Gagaday top comics. And he wanted to kind of adapt that, keep the name, and that would eventually become Peanuts. The only reason it wasn't called Lil Folks is because it was too close to Lil Abner, which was another popular comic strip at the time. The, the people in the comic syndication thing were like, well, Peanuts, or like after the Peanut Gallery from the Howdy Doody show. And it stuck, much to uh, Mr. Schultz's chagrin. So it's actually a little odd that they went with the Peanuts movie for this. In fact, in some countries, it was actually titled Snoopy and Charlie Brown, a Peanuts movie. That said, Peanuts makes a lot of sense for these characters. There's much like Peanuts, these characters have a lot of nutritional value. They have kind of simple shells you have to get into to like get to the nutrients, but those are all really good. A lot of them come in pairs, and I'm allergic to them. We've often talked about on this bracket the creators of these older comic strips and how they can be somewhat problematic. Yeah. I'm not saying that Charles Schultz is a completely perfect individual, but in comparison to some of the other creators that we've talked about, actually incredibly solid. He is the only person to work on the Peanuts comic strip for its entire 50-year run. Dang. He announced his retirement in 1999 and had a few more comics run in 2000, which is the year he uh, unfortunately passed. But in that time, Peanuts kind of changed the game for newspaper comics. At the time of its debut, the gag-a-day format wasn't terribly complex. It was just kind of mostly physical humor or some odd wordplay or things like that. But with Peanuts, because of how much Charlie Brown is based off of Charles Schultz's childhood and his childhood failures, there's a lot of psychologically complex stuff going on with Charlie Brown and the chronicles of his failure. And Charlie Brown is kind of considered the original underdog. And this very much resonated with the American public in general. Peanuts is even still incredibly popular today. It's one of the most beloved comic strips of all time. Even in 1969, they named the Lunar and Command modules for Apollo 10 after Snoopy and Charlie Brown. Nice. That kind of gives you context for how kind of all-American Peanuts is considered. In 1968, Charles Schultz introduced a black character that's a comic, Franklin. 1968? A few years after the Civil Rights Act, when racial tensions was at some of its highest in the United States. He actually came to the decision due to some correspondence with some fans by California school teacher, as well as some of her African-American friends that she got uh, Mr. Schultz in contact with. And originally his reluctance to add a black character in was he didn't want the black community could feel that he was patronizing them. Solid. That takes a lot of introspection to kind of reach that conclusion, especially yeah. at the time. Yeah. That's kind of our little history lesson for Peanuts before we dive into the film. Also, really interesting, this film is written and produced by Charles's son and grandson, Craig and Brian Schultz. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, they went into this with the screenplay in hand and were very adamant that the Schultz family kind of maintain creative control and have final say on things. They wanted to maintain and protect their grandfather slash father's legacy. Understandable. Mm. And it shows. I think that the Peanuts movie is a really great encapsulation of everything that Peanuts is about. 
and all the characters feel very true to the comics. Peanuts isn't a comic strip that I have like a dense familiarity with, but even I'm like, oh, I recognize these character traits. I recognize what's be- what's happening here. I recognize how these translated pretty well. Yeah, there's a lot of little things. It's distributed by Fox, and during the 20th Century Fox opening music, they have Schroeder playing it on his little piano in the foreground, and it's such a nice little touch. Speaking of little touches, ah, the animation. I love the animation so much. So if you've gone out to see Into the Spider-Verse, you kind of have an idea of what this animation is a bit like, in that they blend 3D moving objects with the drawn lines you get in a comic strip. It doesn't have the, like, revolutionary animation from Into the Spider-Verse, but there's definitely elements of that, like things going boink, Woodstock's little lines of movements when Snoopy is revving up to go running, his feet suddenly get outlines that they didn't have before. They do a really cool thing that probably sped up animation quite a bit, where instead of having fully modeled eyes that would have probably looked kind of weird on these characters, they just have a sphere for the faces, and then they have more of a traditional 2D animated face moving around on it. So the eyes, the eyebrows, etc. are all textures as opposed to physically realized, which allows them to keep that traditional art style of the cartoons and not have to find a way to translate this flat medium to a 3D medium. And it looks nice. This very easily could have gotten to Uncanny Valley, Valley territory, and they made that transition very well, and it avoids a lot of those issues. Mm-hmm. There's a really great bit towards the start where Sally has hearts flying out from her head over Linus and she spins across the ice into a drift of snow and both her and the hearts around her make indentations in the snow. It's a really, like, fun little thing. Mm. This film also does a really great job of kind of getting you caught up all of these characters. Even someone who is not very familiar with Peanuts, even five minutes into the film, is going to have a pretty solid understanding of what about half a dozen of these characters, what their personalities are like. The film opens with alarm clocks going off until we get the different characters turning off their alarm clocks in different ways, which is a really like easy go-to way to do character introductions in a film, but it works every time. I got who these characters were. They got some good gags in there. It was really efficient. Again, one of the best ones is Schroeder, who has uh, Beethoven as his alarm clock sound. And rather than turn it off, he just kind of sits there and savors the moment. We should all be more like Schroeder. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gets into one of the film's strengths. It's really good at showing rather than telling. Mm-hmm. It does quite a bit of visual storytelling and it excels at it. And they even mess around with that legacy of visual stylings. Like the archetypal image of a person where it's raining only on them when they're sad. There's a bit where Charlie Brown is sad and he's standing under the, the school sprinkler system. So it's just raining on just him. It's really good. Said sprinkler system is the one that he accidentally set off and ruined the dance. Yep, you're a wet blanket, Charlie Brown. Although this film does have kind of a major weak point. I left it out of my plot synopsis, but throughout the film, we're treated to a number of sequences of Snoopy's fantastical daydreams of being a World War I flying ace, dogfighting with the Red Baron. He has a love interest, Fifi, who is attempting to save from being captured by the Red Baron. I like the sequences. They add some impact and some action to a movie that would not normally have it, and it helps break up a little bit of the kind of downer stuff going on with Charlie Brown. And they look really nice. Yeah, they they are very technically proficient. They just go on too long. Mm -hmm. Although admittedly, that's us saying them as people who are looking to critique a story as opposed to 
kids watching a thing that is meant to entertain them for an hour and a half. Yeah. I agree that they're too long from a storytelling perspective, but I think they're probably fine for a kid's film. This is definitely a kid's film. So, mm-hmm. And there's a really cool thing with those sequences where, because Snoopy's plane is just his doghouse, they never show the bottom of the doghouse while it's in the air. So you never have the sense of, how is it flying? It's, it's always just beneath the, the bottom of the frame. It's a really nice little visual thing. Mm-hmm. Going back to it being a kid's film, it's actually interesting because in 2015 and it being a kid's film, they have not really advanced the technology of the film at all. Snoopy still writes on a typewriter. He finds it in the dumpster at the school after he's kicked out because dogs can't go to school. (laughs) Charlie Brown is writing with a fountain pen. None of the kids pull out like smartphones or anything like that, which I don't even know how you would do that with peanuts. I don't think it would work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... I don't know, you could consider it a period piece, but honestly, the movie just kind of feels timeless. It kind of just exists outside of time, much like most of the reruns of Peanuts comic strips are in today's newspapers. And I think it works. I do not want to see someone try to modernize the Peanuts and what that would look like. That's called Dog She's God. It's well written, but finding a well-acted version that you can easily watch is not super easy. Go in with your own directives. Also know that it opens with Charlie Brown giving a monologue about Snoopy contracting rabies and eating Woodstock. So there's that. Wow. Yeah, it's that kind of play. Very different from you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Yeah, you're an existential crisis, Charlie Brown. Also weird and uncanny is how the little red-haired girl doesn't have a name. (sighs) <sighs> this this is probably the weakest point of the film. I understand the thought process behind not doing it. The little red-haired girl, the object of Charlie Brown's infatuation, canonically never appeared in the comic strip. We see a silhouette of her, I think, in the mid-90s, and that's it. For the most part, she never even appeared in the comic. It's always Charlie Brown talking about her to other characters. And from that perspective, it makes sense why Charlie Brown would call her the little red-haired girl. He's too nervous to talk to her. He doesn't really know anything about her. She is this object of his desires that's constantly out of reach. And yeah, treating women as an object and all that sort of stuff. Hashtag not great. Yeah. This film does try to remedy quite a bit of that. It makes it so at the very beginning of the years when she moves in, so she's new. It makes sense that Charlie Brown doesn't know a lot about her. And we get from that whole beginning sequence of him trying to talk to her why he can't and all of his insecurities. But as the film goes on, it makes less and less sense that she is not given a name. There's one point in the film where, so she is gone and out of class, and the teacher is trying to partner people up via a fishbowl of names for the book report project. Charlie Brown goes up and pulls her name out of the fishbowl and says, The little red-haired girl, my lucky day. And he could have even just said, it's her. That would have been fine. And... I get that in the continuity of the comic strip, she was never named and they want to preserve the legacy of Charles Schultz. I get that. I understand to a certain extent, especially because it's his son and grandson who are involved here. However, in 1977, in a Valentine's holiday special, she is given a goddamn name 
Charles Schultz himself worked on that. Now, if you want to nitpick, many Peanuts fans know that Charles Schultz never considered any of the holiday specials canon to Peanuts. Right. I get it. But she is given the name Heather Wold. And that name is actually pretty important. It is... The last name comes from Donna Maywold, a love interest that Charles Schultz himself had who he proposed to and was shot down because she was engaged to someone else. Dang. And you can read his writing as that, but it was obviously a pretty sizable blow to his ego and his emotions. And it's understandable why he kind of funneled that into this little red-haired girl character in the comic strip and why he decided to give her that name in the 1977 special. I think it's completely reasonable for his son and grandson to grandfather that name in for this to give the story more legitimacy because the longer the film goes on without her having an actual real name it just doesn't work the suspension of disbeliefs keeps dissipating every time they are not using her name yeah and because she doesn't get a name it becomes even more and more clear that she is just an object of desire as opposed to an actual character with mm-hmm. agency up until the end it makes it more and more weird the way that charlie brown's interacting with her and it makes the resolution of this arc less satisfying because he doesn't actually care about her as a person she's just a goalpost by which the measurement of his bravery can be tracked past I wouldn't even say bravery, determination. Determination, yeah. And he's just in love with the idea of her. Like, she's the Daisy Buchanan, Charlie Brown. Astute listeners will note I've never called what Charlie Brown has for the little red-haired girl love. I've always said infatuation. She and her not having a name is a major reason for that. And the thing is, the film had a really great out for this, and it decided not to use it. So the best way to handle this situation is you kind of rework some of the way the story is structured to have it make sense that Charlie Brown doesn't quite know her name and they never use it. And like you said, in that where he's picking her name out of the fishbowl, you just go, it's her. Because she doesn't really have any agency, she's kind of just a object of his infatuation when he confronts her in front of the bus before she goes to summer camp and she gives her little speech. It's a really heartfelt moment and agree to write each other. And then after she's given agency and kind of establishes that relationship with him, she is now a fully realized character. And, you know, you have her drive off. You have an after credit sequence with Charlie Brown reading her first letter back to him and, like, see him scrolling down. And then at the very bottom, you see you have her sign the letter with her real name. Your friend Heather. Or any other name. Yeah. Any other name. I think it would have been appropriate to use that one, but literally any name, any name at all. I think it would have been a great way to handle that and still keep the mysteriousness that Peanuts fans have associated with that character for 50 years. Mm -hmm. And I watched through the tail end all the way through the credits to see if we got that moment and we never did. I gave this movie every chance to redeem itself. (laughs) It's really frustrating because I like this movie, but it's such a glaring flaw. Mm -hmm. And it's core to the movie. It's not like one scene or one plot line. It is the whole thing is Charlie Brown putting a lady on a pedestal and her never really getting a chance to get down off of it. (sighs) You're a paper town, Charlie Brown. (laughs) I know that that was a little ranty, but it's justified. Yeah. 
And that's kind of in addition to all of the other weird gender stuff that the film does that's kind of just endemic to Peanuts and that sort of classic Americana, very heteronormative. You have a lot of like girls being the romantic aggressor and the boys having no interest. And it'd be fine if that was one character's thing, but that is replicated by two or three different girls. Uh, there are four. Four girls who are kind of seeking out a male partner throughout the film. Three of the four are pining after someone who does not return their feelings. So there is Sally, Charlie Brown's younger sister, towards Linus. Oh, my sweet baboo. There is Lucy towards Schroeder. (gasps) Schroeder! There's no denying it. It was written in the card. There is Peppermint Patty towards Charlie Brown. Chuck, are you trying to hold my hand? And then there is Patty, not confused with Peppermint Patty. She's blonde and has a green bow in her hair towards Pigpen. A little dirt never hurt anyone. (laughs) And Pigpen, to some extent, does return her affections. Mm -hmm. But we never see any of the boys, with the exception of Charlie Brown, pining after a girl. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a long, complicated conversation to be had about women having agency in relationships and women having agency in kids' media, but there's still something about this that leaves a weird taste in my mouth. Mm. It's kind of like how over-the-top they are in pursuing those affections. It's not subtle and shy, in like, the, like the typical schoolyard way you would expect from characters this age. Mm-hmm. And that it's basically omnipresent. Marcy doesn't do that, but also, I mean, Marcy Peppermint Patty is as close to canon as it's gonna get. She calls her sir. Yeah. There's like, there's some weird relationship dynamics going on there, and it's been fanon that they are in lesbians with each other for a while. Peppermint Patty in this movie has an overwhelming butch energy, and it's great. <laughs> I guess Fifi doesn't do this, but then again... She's a figment of his imagination. Right. I mean, much like the little red-headed girl, honestly. To a certain extent. <laughs> yeah. All kidding aside, there are a lot of, like, just kids having solid friendships and ki- kids having solid friendships beyond gender lines apart from the people they're directly attracted to. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. That's always good. Yeah. And there's also, to like, a certain extent, even the people who are vying for the affection of others, they're able to maintain friendships in addition to that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not the worst yeah, we're not saying this is a like, you know, that this movie's gender politics are on the level of Spawn. I know. <laughs> um, just so that they could probably do with updating. Mm-hmm. We've rambled for quite a while. I think it is getting to be that time. Yeah, I think I'm more excited about watching Peanuts again. I would agree. As much as a glaring flaw leaving well, one of your main characters unnamed due to sexism sexism and also due to legacy Mm. is a huge problem on every other level peanuts is far and away the better film it is more technically competent it tells a much more coherent story it does a lot better job of using its ensemble cast and establishing those characters and i don't want to watch popeye again (laughs) Yeah, same. With that, Charlie Brown is moving on to have the football ripped away another day. And uh, Papa the Sailor Man has to settle down. What do we have coming up next week? We have The Crow versus The Mask. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, we had a nice fluffy episode this time, and now we're right back into uh, dark, scary mythology movies and also The Crow. <laughs>
Well, if you want to be sure to catch that episode when it goes live, you can make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Podbean, as well as Spotify. Until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thank you for tuning in.